Chapter 4 In the confusion and horror of her war years, Ruth found herself unable to educate her children about right and wrong. Every word she imagined speaking seemed hollow in her own ears. The evil of the Great War, the ghastly effect it had had on her own family, own marriage, own soul, lent scant weight to the little ethics from which grow the Great Ones. Ruth did not greatly care if Tom lied or stole or ate too much, and so his education was left to Reginald. But children can never really teach other children about right and wrong. The only lesson children can inflict on each other is conformity, and this was about as far as Reginald got before Tom abruptly wrenched the rudder from his hand. At first, Tom was so naturally compliant that sometimes when he stood in front of wallpaper, Ruth half expected him to assume its color and texture. He was very different from Reginald, who was rarely compliant, rarely rebellious, and fundamentally quite cold. Through the haze of her loss, Ruth still strove to understand her eldest son. Reginald's coldness was hard to penetrate. He was often attentive, high-spirited, and could be very funny. But he had all the spontaneity of a statue. He gave dry kisses and distant hugs. His eyes never shone, and his cheeks rarely flared red or white. He has an old soul, thought his mother, and if he did, it had a lot to do with her, who was from the old world and was full of old corpses too long unburied. Ruth's general exhaustion, or as Quentin put it, her lack of resources, was not helped by the fact that she had given birth to one morning child and one night child. Reginald got up early and would sometimes drag Tom out of bed in the half-dark of dawn to play with soldiers or read comics or build a sopwith camel biplane out of balsa wood and black thread. Tom enjoyed all these things, especially building airplanes, but did not like to get up until the third call for breakfast. Almost like a photograph, Tom developed in the dark. Unless he was extraordinarily tired, he could never fall asleep before one or two o'clock in the morning, and if he did get to sleep early, his rest would be broken by endless bouts of waking, so that it seemed that night had been little more than a passage of dark, jumpy dizziness. Being a prisoner of the general cult of morning people, he was not allowed light at night, and so he developed excellent night vision and good games of semi-darkness. One of these was Arctic Explorers. In the blue moonlight of his window, his sheets looked like vast fields of ice. His pillow, properly plumped, was a glacier or ice mountain. His blanket, a dark frigid sea. His toy soldiers, intrepid Arctic Explorers or secret Swedish commandos. Their goal, an ancient weapon locked in the depths of ice, which would end the war and bring them all home. Tom's imagination was detailed to the point of near gruesomeness. A fair number of his toy soldiers lacked hands, arms, or legs, which was because the intrepid Arctic explorers had a habit of getting snowed in. A white gym sock laid across their sleeping forms and ended up eyeing each other's frozen extremities with narrowed and hungry eyes. One had even eaten himself, and was just ahead. Tom did not make friends easily. Indeed, it was not until his late teens that Tom cultivated true and close companions. Reginald, on the other hand, was very popular. He was one of those odd but significantly destined children who possessed a kind of ageless composure and scornful maturity, which gave them great power in the settling of disputes and granting of approval. The life of upper-class British children was an endless process of being cattle-prodded into claustrophobic pens of social absolutes. All tribal layers seek to perpetuate themselves. Elites do it with a judicial combination of vanity and humiliation. You are the greatest, is alternated with, this is what happens to those who disobey. Reginald developed friends, it was true, but in an odd manner. He sort of had friends for himself, but also against his brother. Reginald went to boarding school two years before Tom and would bring his school friends home for a week or two over the summer or Christmas breaks, and it was hard to tell which brought him more pleasure, having his friends over or having them all go on great adventures and leave Tom behind. 
as close as brothers is a phase that is far overused. It should really be as close as brothers seem until some incident triggers memories of early treachery. The number of younger brothers who are spun on hanging tires until they vomit, or sealed in ice boxes until they faint, or sat on until they gasp for breath, or who have their noses and mouths covered until they see purple spots, or who are teased to within an inch of insanity, this number is so great, it would almost seem that younger brothers are in fact seeds scattered over the rich earth of family dysfunction. Seeds whose flowers are the sadism of their older siblings. In response to Reginald's cruelty, Tom developed all of the skills of humiliated solitude. He loved to read and draw, he grew into a great imagination, and learned how to keep his counsel. He also grew terrifically brave. This can be a long time coming for younger siblings, but if it is achieved, there is almost no human force that is stronger. There were two significant women in the boys' lives. The first was their mother, the second was Catherine, their housekeeper and nanny, who was a great, powerful, primitive cauldron of all that is best and deepest in the matriarchy. Catherine was Irish and had all the traits, the wide hips, the high forehead, the freckles, the strong arms, the thin curly red hair, the beaming smile. There is something about Ireland which is good for women and bad for men. The men drink and tell sad tales. The women fall in love with nature, the sky, their errant men, their children, their country, the very air itself. The superfluity of love in Irish women is what keeps the Emerald Isle afloat. Of course, the fact that most Irish men are fairly useless does give great heft to the weight of the matriarchy, and this tends to be a self-perpetuating system. Men are useless, the power of women flows unimpeded, thus the sons of useless men become useless themselves. Catherine was mystical but disciplined. She was unintellectual but instinctual, and so had access to all the simple truths that the intellect so often obscures. She cried easily, but was not overly sentimental. She was a slave to beauty, the beauty of a swan, a man, or a child's rounded apple bum. Little gestures of affection melted her heart. She would hold a grudge for a thousand years, unless she was brought a cake. She had a sweet tooth. She was unconcerned with her figure. She kept her hair long, but never styled it. She loved her own bosoms, perhaps because they obscured the size of her hips. She hugged Tom so tight that his ribs would creak like an old accordion. Catherine was a natural storyteller. One night when the boys were very young, and they nestled both on her hips, like little petals in a tree's knots, she told them the following story. Mr. Mouse heard a hammering at his door one morning, and he went to see who it was, and it was Mr. Badger, who grabbed his little paw and pulled him out the door. "'We're late for the race!' cried Mr. Badger. "'What race?' asked Mr. Mouse, his voice catching because he was bouncing up and down so hard. "'The race we're late for!' panted Mr. Badger as they came up to the house of Mr. Goose. "'Mr. Goose!' shouted Mr. Badger, pounding at the door with his free hand. His other hand held the little paw of Mr. Mouse. "'Come on, we're late for the race!' Mr. Goose stuck his long neck out the window. "'Run, run, we're late, we're late!' cried Mr. Badger. Mr. Goose wriggled out of his little window, and they kept running. They came to the house of Mr. Elephant, and Mr. Mouse became a little nervous. Uh, does he have to run in the race? Everyone races, cried Mr. Badger. No exceptions. Mr. Elephant took a moment to join them, because he couldn't remember anything about the race, and since elephants have such good memories, he was confused. Then he joined them, and Mr. Mouse had to run quite a long way behind Mr. Elephant because he didn't want to be squished, and did not think this was very fair. "'I hope we don't come to Mr. Cat's house next,' he thought, but of course that is exactly what happened. And so Mr. Cat joined them, and then Mr. Dog, and Mr. Hedgehog, who was not allowed to roll, and Mr. Bear, and Mr. Wolf, and lots and lots of other animals, and finally they were all stampeding through a wood when Mr. Mouse— feeling that his little heart was about to burst, ran up to the front, where Mr. Badger was running along. Mr. Mr. Badger, when do we get to the race? he panted. But, my dear Mr. Mouse, 
cried Mr. Badger. Don't you know? This is the race. And then Mr. Mouse stopped running and just managed to scurry to one side as Mr. Hippo went thundering past. And then he brushed himself off with his little paws and sighed very, very deeply. <sighs> well, it's a long way home, no mistake, but when I get there, I will have a tall glass of cold milk and write myself a long note that I am not to run after Mr. Badger any more and pin it to the door and look at it every morning and make sure I remember. And that is exactly what he did. Tom loved this story. And did he? Of course, said Catherine, putting him on his bed and kissing his forehead. And the next time Mr. Badger came around? Ah, there was no next time. Mr. Badger only comes for you if you forget that there is no race. Tom lay back, listening to Reginald scrambling into his bed above him in the darkness. There was a lot to consider in that story. Reginald snorted. Why would there be just misters if there were no misses? There was a pause. And the elephant would remember. Pause. And why just that year he'd put a note on his door every year? Pause. Finally, with a decisive rolling over rustle. That's a stupid story. Catherine could be surprisingly ferocious. On more than one occasion, the boys' endless backyard war games would end suddenly as Catherine, her ears constantly tuned to the child in true distress frequency, came charging into the trenches and dispersed the little gods of war with all the wild power of no-nonsense feminine outrage. Her ability to tell whining from genuine distress was fascinating to Tom. Sometimes he would play around with this. If he fell and twisted his ankle slightly or stubbed his toe or fell and winded himself, he would cry out, but she would never appear. If he injured himself seriously, though, he would cry out without thinking, and next thing he would be scooped up in her dress, her damp, cold arms pressed against him, her head lowered over him, her voice descending from her hanging hair like birds in a high, dark willow. It was like another game of his, the game of catching himself falling asleep. Every time he tried to feel himself falling asleep, he would wake again. He never felt himself sliding into the dark. It only ever happened when he was not trying to see it. Likewise, Catherine only came when he did not try to summon her. She was a wonderful nurse. She allowed no whining and was beautifully immune to manipulation, because she knew truth as well as plants know sunlight. They never grow into shadow, and she never hugged a complainer. Children should be part of the house when sick, she always said, and never put an ill child in his room, but made up the sofa in the living room, and always stayed in reach, and drew suffering, it seemed, directly into her ample flesh, where it dissipated without harm. Tom loved her beyond words, beyond reason. It was Catherine who taught him the power of really listening, and she also taught him everything about inevitability, which is perhaps the most important lesson of childhood. Everyone tells you everything in the first five minutes, she always said. Tom never understood her except in his heart, and in the story of his life, it was almost too many years before his head caught up. Chapter 5 as the great war ground on, the games of the children at home grew longer and fiercer and darker. These battles usually involved storming a position or retrieving a rag or book or some such treasure from the enemy. The rules were elaborate and the weapons were defined down to the last detail. Everyone knew just what kind of stick ended in a bayonet and which did not. Grenades were classed according to radius of impact. Those boys who had elected to be pilots... Tom was always in this group, knew how they should time the opening of their hands over the trenches, what arc their apple bombs would actually take. All the base physics of war, all the dismal science of a boy's deep warrior brain, all this made the shooting down of a plane supposed to be a few hundred yards overhead, but was actually a boy running past, all very realistic and surprisingly free of disagreements. It was Tom who discovered the undisputedly accurate methodology of simulating bomb drops. 
Sycamore seeds, which spun and fluttered to the ground in uncertain sideways paths, were deemed to be accurate representations, but only if the boy crossed no man's land at a full sprint, with his legs barely visible, and returned at the same speed. The exhaustion of this run, no man's land could be fifty yards long and it took time to turn around at full speed, also limited the number and frequency of flights and the number of pilots. Many boys preferred flanking the enemy, crawling through leaves or lobbing shells. Shelling was tricky but could be managed. They all had provisional helmets, stolen colanders or pots tied with string, and so cricket balls, hard and painful, were possible but of course a genital shot could end play for a few days for an unlucky boy so tennis balls were used instead. The radius of damage was considered to be about five yards, and hits were taken on an honor system. Direct hits put you out of the game for a slow count of a hundred. Perhaps British reincarnation was more efficient. They did have an empire, after all. Being in the five-yard radius was a fifty. This could be cut in half if you were touched by a medic. Naturally, for tennis ball shells, only the first bounce counted. No Man's Land was a different matter. If you were killed there, you had to wait until a medic came to touch you, and often wars were ended by drawing more and more medics out to rescue heaps of dead soldiers. It was also acceptable to use the enemy's shells. Crawling out to retrieve them was for scouts, who could not be damaged by machine gun fire since they were heavily camouflaged. This created a good balance. Killing a scout with more tennis balls was good, because he would have to wait there until a medic came and revived him. Medics could be killed by machine gun fire, and so sometimes a large quantity of tennis balls were lobbed into no man's land just to draw out scouts and medics. Machine gun fire was very effective. To kill an enemy soldier, all that was required was that you make the sound, then call out the boy's name. Originally, this was just the boy's first name, but the single-syllable slaughter this entailed made charging across no man's land pointless and so it was first expanded to the boy's first and last name, and when that also proved too calamitous, all the boys' names had to be shouted out. Given that they were mostly upper-class boys, this could be four or five names. The number or title after the names, so-and-so the third or Esquire, were dropped, as being too difficult to remember and prone to slowing down the game. The speed of the war was essential, since nothing destroyed the illusion of combat more than having the Germans and English stop in mid-slaughter to argue about rules. Occasional fraternization was allowed. Once Reginald, acting on a newspaper article, waved a white flag and brought a jug of lemonade over to the German trench, saying that on Christmas it was all right to share whiskey. This Eternal backyard war was quite difficult for the mothers, who often congregated in sitting rooms and drank tea or sherry, while the soprano shouts of slaughter rang through the misty air. They sealed up the windows and talked more loudly, but could not imagine stopping the war. The boys were too spent afterwards, and none of the mothers relished the thought of bringing twenty-odd boys indoors and organizing pacifist activities for them. And the girls, well, the girls mostly left the boys alone. But there were a few intrepid souls who decided to venture into the backyard front and assert themselves as nurses. One even fought hard to become a soldier, which was, after a long discussion, allowed, since the Geneva Convention only stipulated that women could not be combatants, and she was still only a girl. Besides, she was the fastest runner, and so excellent at bombing missions. By 1918, the backyard wars were almost endless, and the teams were beginning to harden. Originally, the German-English were picked by eeny, meeny, miny, mo, but as the indignities and insults accumulated, boys began to want to be on either team to avenge the injustices of the previous day's battle. The protests of the mothers had won out, and the battle had been relocated to some local woods where ancient and abandoned plow lines were hacked into realistic trenches. Reginald was often on the German side. Tom was too young to be a pilot because he was deemed too slow to stay airborne. He became a medic instead, who was confined to the trenches, since he was too slow to dodge the shelling in no man's land. He had started out as a cook, which meant running to the nearest house for snacks, but refused that within a week and was replaced by a girl. Reginald was a cunning and resourceful enemy. 
Most of the boys who joined the war started out with direct charges on enemy lines, hoping to end things quickly, waving wooden swords and crying for the other boys to follow them. For St. George! They ran alone, of course, and were mercilessly cut down and learned better. Among the Germans, Reginald rose quickly to the position of field marshal because he had great patience and original plans. He hand-picked his troops, gave them detailed instructions, and was excellent at drawing the British out of position and attacking them where they were weakest. This strategy produced great confusion among the English troops, and they began to spread themselves too thin, not knowing where Reginald was going to strike. Tom struggled hard for command of the British troops. His youth was a distinct disadvantage, as was the fact that he could not scan no man's land without a boost. But he had an instinctive feel for Reginald's thinking. The point, he explained over and over, was not to respond to Reginald's attacks, but rather to figure out why he was attacking. Why would he want us to go over there, he would ask, but the boys ignored him, rushing to their usual pre-lunch slaughter, and the Germans would win again. Reginald's regular victories enraged Tom. It was wrong, the bad men winning, and it must be stopped. Every time Reginald accepted a British surrender, Tom felt that his father was slipping further and further away. So he would spend evenings covering old newspapers with his memories of the day's combat, the strategies used, the casualties. And he began to discover patterns and also figured out where Reginald must be hiding based on the movements of his troops. One morning, he tried out to be a pilot. The boys timed his race back and forth between the two trenches, and he made it, so he got his wings. As the war commenced, he ran through the trees, gathering fistfuls of sycamore trees, as the <coughs> of machine guns and screams of the wounded filled the air. A flurry of shells came overhead, and he threw himself under some bushes until they bounced past. He counted to five, then ran and stuffed his pockets with the shells. He picked up his sycamore seeds, then sprinted back to the trench and threw himself against the wet earth wall. A wounded boy lay grimacing. Tom healed him, saying, It's all right, I was a medic. What's going on? The boy looked up. Thanks, the Bosch are attacking the North Trench. Show me, said Tom. The boy took a stick and drew in the mud. He sent his aircraft up to here and here. Machine gun positions. The one that got me was here, but I saw another one up here. Tom looked at the positions. I need your help, soldier. For what? Well, if we kill Reginald, we win the war. If you look at it, his planes are flying to here and here, which must mean that they are starting from here, right? And his machine guns are set up here. He needs to talk with them, right? So he has to be here. The boy squinted up skeptically. You think? Yeah. So what do you want me to do? Cover me for a bombing run. Go out halfway into no man's land, then cover me if a machine gun opens up. With what? Hold these. Tom dumped his sycamore seeds into the boy's hands, then emptied his pockets. Holy, that's a lot of ammo, whispered the boy, staring at the shells. Big sky thunder, grinned Tom, taking back his seeds. This is my plan. I'm not going to fly over the trench, but into the trench. Into? Yeah, look. They have to shoot up to get me, right? Those are the rules. If I'm in the trench, they can't get beneath me, so I'm going to be all right. And besides, all their guns are facing out. But a plane can't fly in a trench. Why not? Tom stood up and stretched out his arm. See, my wings don't touch the side of our trench. It's wide enough. You can fly the length of the Bosch Trench without touching your wingtips at all. I think so, said Tom. Come on, we'll be heroes, statues, medals, girls. We'll talk about it for weeks. All right, said the boy. Now put those shells in your pockets, said Tom. I carry them kangaroo style, said the boy, piling them in the belly of his jumper. There was a great salvo of machine guns to the north, and the cries of the wounded filled the air. Come on, said Tom. He tried to scramble up the embankment, but his legs were too small. The boy stared at him. Give me a boost, then, cried Tom. The boy cupped his hands, and Tom climbed up, treading on the boy's shoulder. I'll wait here, said Tom. You get into position by that dead German. The boy crawled out into no man's land. Tom shielded his eyes, his heart hammering. Loosen your hands, he commanded himself. If he crushed the sycamore seeds, he would have no ammo. The boy crawled further. A shell fell near him. Had he been seen, he froze. 
a German fell back in the far trench. No, just a misthrow from a wounded man. He made it to the dead German, who was forbidden by the rules of war from giving away the British boy's position. Tom vocally revved up his engine, extended his wings, then churned his legs and took off. Turbulence was bad, the rutted earth bounced under his waving vision. A German soldier, picking his nose, looked up startled, then turned his machine gun. But a shell from Tom's cover caught him squarely on the forehead, and he fell back silently. As was proper, direct hits could not be called out. Tom turned and gave the thumbs up to the boy, who grinned back. He was across. Tom swooped into the German trench. It was empty. Everything was happening to the north. He flew north, being extra careful not to brush his wingtips. Sometimes the trench narrowed, and he had to bank sharply, then turn back to avoid hitting the wall. He passed two machine-gun nests on his mad plunge towards enemy headquarters. The first did not notice him despite his growing engine noise. The second did, and their jaws dropped, and they wheeled their guns around, but Tom had flown around a corner by the time they were in position. Aircraft in the trench! Aircraft in the trench! They cried out, before being silenced by another expert shell from Tom's cover. Another corner. Some dead soldiers. This was tricky. He had to fly over them without stepping on them. And the trench narrowed as well. Tom's legs flew. His shoulders ached from the strain of such a twisted flight course. One German tried to trip him. Must be wounded, thought Tom. But he leapt up and flew onwards. Incoming Englander plane, cried the wounded German, leaning on his elbows, admiration in his eyes. Tom turned another corner. There! He saw Reginald lying on his belly in a hacked-out depression, with two older boys scanning the air above no man's land with cupped-finger binoculars. They heard the sound of the incoming plane and frantically searched the battlefield for the source. It was not until the last moment when one of the German generals caught Tom's incoming aircraft roaring up from the trench. He screamed, tugging at Reginald's belt. Reginald dropped his binoculars and threw up his arms as Tom released his bombs and pulled up madly. Glancing back, he saw his double fistful of sycamores floating down over the three German leaders, scattering over Reginald's dumbfounded face. Tom flew on into no man's land. The war was over. He tried to do a victory roll, then make a graceful landing, but he was too tired. He stumbled over a shell and plowed into the glistening earth. His wings crumpled, but he rolled clear and lay panting, giggling, coughing, squinting up at the clear blue sky, joy coursing through his veins. "'Doesn't count!' screamed Reginald, scrambling to his feet, brushing the bombs from his jumper. "'Not fair! You can't fly in a trench!' The other boys gathered around as Reginald marched up to Tom. "'That doesn't count! That was no victory!' Tom couldn't stop giggling. "'Shut up!' shouted Reginald. "'There's nothing to laugh about! It doesn't count!' "'What, <laughs> what a feat of arms!' gasped Tom, pumping his arms in the air. I am the warrior king! I saw him, Reg, said one of the ex-Germans. He flew the trench without touching his wings. You can't fly a trench! I flew the trench, Reggie, said Tom, knowing how much his brother hated that nickname. No touch, no crash. Are you telling me you think a real airplane could fly a trench? If you built the trench wide enough to let a plane fly it, that's not my fault. He's right, Reg said another boy. He followed the rules. If it couldn't happen in the real world, it shouldn't happen here, shouted Reg. Why do you think there's no navy? I thought it was great, grinned one of the German generals. I turned around and almost peed my pants. Wizard! British victory, said another. No, cried Reginald. Don't be a sore loser, Reg, said one of his generals. You had the plan, he had the courage. Fair fight. Let's get some lunch said another boy, thrusting his gun into the wet earth. Great job, Tommy. Yeah, absolutely. First rate. The boys all passed him, patting him on the back and shaking his hand. Reginald took several steps backwards, his face seething. The war continued throughout the summer in both the backyard and France. The battles grew more vicious in both arenas. Reginald's plans grew so complicated that his troops began to rebel against his leadership, complaining about the complexity of their orders, the endless drills and practices, and his habit of screaming at the dead and wounded. The idea that leadership should be turn-based, and that Reginald had already had more than his turn, began to grow among the muttering German soldiery. As British victories mounted, Reginald was also faced with mounting desertions. 
and the growing belief that eeny, meeny, miny, mo should be resurrected as a means of choosing sides. This posed great problems for Reginald. First, there was no point developing detailed plans of attack if he did not know his team, and second, if his German generals defected to the British side, all his secrets would be spilled straight into the ear of the enemy. However, this problem began to be overshadowed by the problem of over-realistic game-playing. Harold was the first to succumb. As his family losses mounted, a father, then an older brother, an uncle, a cousin, his war-playing began to get out of hand. His bayonet went from an invisible extension of his stick to the stick itself, and he began leaving welts. He picked up grenades already exploded and threw them straight into the faces of oncoming soldiers. He tripped pilots. He refused to be hit, even when it was obvious. Everyone was afraid to bar him from the game. He became belligerent or burst into tears if the honor of his gameplay was called into question. So the war games just became a little more realistic. For a boy, seeing Harold bearing down on him provided a far deeper sense of war than a tennis ball to the head. So he bounced from side to side and was given shelling, scouting or medical roles, but he often went rogue, wandering the battlefield, immune to bullets, bayoneting anyone in his path. Tom kept an eye on Harold, sure enough. One afternoon he snapped completely and began clubbing the wounded in no man's land, who scattered wildly before his charge. "'Fucking Jerry's!' screamed Harold, swinging wildly. "'Harold!' shouted Tom, running forward. "'Harold, it's lunchtime!' "'Fucking Jerry's!' Harold cried out again. He ran after a young boy and clubbed him viciously on the side of the head. The boy went down without a sound. The boy's brother ran to check on him. "'What did you do?' cried the brother, who then leapt up and tried to drag Harold to the ground. Harold twisted around and bit the boy's forearm. Tom picked up a stone from a low wall, ringing a flower bed. "'We're not playing any more!' he shouted. Heads began emerging from the trenches on both sides. "'Are we stopping?' called Reginald. "'Harold's gone buggy!' shouted Tom. "'Just let him tire himself out!' "'Can't,' said Tom, circling the two fighting boys. "'We've got wounded. "'Just tell them to get up. "'Real wounded!' There was an unholy scream as more biting ensued between the fighting boys. Permanent injury was just around the corner." Reginald came running forward. Harold, you've got to stop. Tom circled behind the boys with his rock nestled in his hand. Harold threw the boy down and scrambled over to grab his stick. Harold, cried Reginald, put the stick down and talk to me. Harold glanced up and scowled, one of his eyes blood red. The boy on the ground groaned and rolled. Reginald spread his hands. We can talk this out, Harold. Take a breath. Put the stick down. Harold's hands tightened on his stick and it slowly came up. Tom leapt forward from behind and brought him down with a rock to the back of the head. Tom! cried Reginald aghast. What the hell are you doing? Tom stood over Harold, who was moaning and trying to raise himself on all fours. You try to get up, I pound you again, hissed Tom. Reginald strode up, grabbed his younger brother by the shoulders and threw him to the ground. You're just as bad as he is, cried Reginald. Worse, he's lost his father. Tom got up, still holding his rock. "'What, you're going to hit me with that now?' sneered Reginald. "'But who will you be defending? Oh, I forgot, you don't care about defending anyone. You just like bullies because they give you an excuse to hit someone. Because you could never be a bully, could you, Tom? Oh, no!' He turned to Harold, who was swaying, rising, to his feet, clutching his head. "'Come on, Harold, it's all over. Let's get you cleaned up.' Harold lowered his head. "'Here it comes.' murmured Tom, in the circle of the boys, all muscles tensed. Harold charged at Reginald, plowing into his chest and driving him into the ground. Reginald's breath exploded out of him and he wheezed in agony, winded to the core. Harold's hands closed on the neck of his jumper and pulled his head up off the ground. Reginald's eyes squeezed shut as he fought for breath. Tom's free hand closed into a fist. I don't want to save him he thought, and this thought fought mightily in his chest with another thought, a hatred of violence, a feeling of dumb, inevitable blood loyalty, a knowledge that none of the other boys would act. 
Tears sprang into Tom's eyes. He just could not watch his brother getting beaten. Narrowing his eyes and gripping his rock, Tom took a deep breath, lowered his head, and charged at Harold. Chapter 6 There was one adult who attracted Tom. A friend of his mother's named Gunther, who was a scientist and used to be a military man, and had been charged with looking in on the family from time to time. Gunther was very tall and wore his grey hair short, had a large prominent nose and thin-rimmed glasses. His voice was deep and gravelly and his Adam's apple very prominent. He had a slight accent and seemed amused by an inordinate number of things. He had a small, constant smile, but not a cynical one. It was more like delight in the predictable nature of the fools around him than disgust at their prevalence. Tom fell in love with Gunther one sunny afternoon in 1918 when the clouds darkened and rain began to spatter the lawn. He and Reginald had a large number of toys scattered over the grass, and Reginald, as was his habit, just glanced at the wet sky and went inside. Tom stared at the wooden trains, metal trucks, and painted soldiers. They were invading Russia to end communism and so needed a good supply chain, feeling close to tears. If I go in like Reginald did, the toys will all be ruined, we will both be punished, and we'll have nothing to play with ever again. But if I pick up the toys now, Reginald will always go inside and leave me to do all the work. Gunther was reading in a white chair on the back porch. Tom had barely noticed him. In his experience, moral dilemmas did not benefit from the presence of adults. Tom, where's Reginald? called Gunther, closing his newspaper. He's gone inside. What about the toys? I have to get them, I think. Gunther smiled. That's not right. Tom glanced up, his heart hammering suddenly. I'll get him, said Gunther, unfolding his long, lanky frame to a standing position. To Tom, he looked like a flagpole rising up. Gunther went into the house and reappeared with Reginald in tow. Reginald glared at the sky at the starting rain. Now why did you go inside without helping your brother? Because we have a rule, replied Reginald. Whoever brings the toys out has to put them back. Tom brought them out. He has to put them back. I see, said Gunther. Tom, do you agree with that uh, rule? Tom's cheeks burned hot. So much unspoken injustice. No, sir, I don't. And why is that? Reginald scowled. Can we talk about this inside? I'm getting wet. In a moment, said Gunther. Tom? Tom shook his head. I don't like that. Why is that? Because if he plays with the toys, he should help me put them away. And if it's really a rule, like he says, then why does he always go inside without putting any toys away ever? Now you're going to cry, smiled Reginald. Gunther turned to him. So he's wrong? If I take the toys out, I put them back. Yesterday I played with the destroyer. I put it away. You did not, cried Tom, his hands closing into fists. I took it out, you took it away, and I had to put it back. Why do you lie so much? asked Reginald. Does it satisfy you somehow? Gunther leaned back on his heels, rubbing his chin. Right, one thing at a time. Everything's getting wet, cried Reginald, turning to go. I'm getting mother. Gunther leaned forward and closed his hand over Reginald's shoulder. Your mother is lying down and said that I could take you two on this time, so just settle down for a moment. You say you put the destroyer away. Reginald paused, not turning his head. I really don't think I have to talk to you. You're not my father. That does not matter. I have authority because I am a reasonable adult. Are you a younger brother? asked Reginald suddenly, turning towards Gunther with merry eyes. Yes. Yes, I am. Ah, so you sympathize with poor put-upon Tommy, the wee martyr. That's all right. He needs all the friends he can get. Though I must wonder, said Reginald, his eyes narrowing slightly, if your older brother or brothers are not at this moment fighting on the front, yet here you are, bravely disciplining children. Tom flinched. Reginald could be unbelievably brave. Gunther's eyes narrowed. He smiled grimly. Tom fell in love with that smile. Never mind all that, he said. Right now, I want you to do something. 
I want you to show me where that destroyer is. What? Well, you put it away. You can show me where it is, right? I can show you where I put it, of course, replied Reginald brightly. That doesn't mean it's there now. Someone could have moved it, you know. Gunther turned his head. Tom, did you play with the destroyer since yesterday? Tom shook his head. I'm a pilot, not a sea captain. Now, Reginald, you are going to show me where that destroyer is. And if you can, fine, we pursue another line of questioning. But if not, then Tom looks a whole lot more like he's telling the truth. Oh, for heaven's sake, cried Reginald. Is this what adults spend their time on? I don't have time for this. I'm going inside. Gunther picked him up bodily. Tom stared, fascinated, adrenaline running through his young frame like a tsunami through a tap. Reginald cried out. What are you doing, you strange, strange man? Put me down this instant. There was a sudden thump from upstairs, and Ruth's head poked out through a window. Quickly counting the wrinkles on her forehead, Tom realized she was in the grip of the dreaded maternal headache. Gunther, she moaned, what's going on? Go back to bed, Ruth, grunted Gunther, shifting the wriggling boy on his hip. Or go for a walk. This boy needs a man's attention. God damn it, he shouted, throwing Reginald to the floor. You bit me. Reginald scrambled to his feet. You shouldn't use such words. Gunther suddenly laughed. <laughs> All right, so now we go inside. And if you hit me, I'll write my father and he'll come home and deal with you. You can go inside on your own, or I can carry you, and I can be very clumsy, and if you bite me again, I will hit you. Reginald got up, opened the back door, and went inside, banging the door with such force that it shook raindrops from the surrounding ivy. Gunther scowled, then reached out and ruffled Tom's hair. Come on, son, he sighed. They went inside together. Ruth was at the top of the stairs in a pink dressing gown. "'What's happening?' she bleated. "'I was just falling asleep.' "'Ruth,' said Gunther, placing his hand on the bottom of the banister. Tom felt the man's use of his mother's name as an almost physical shock. It seemed to make her smaller in a way that felt good. "'You are a lovely and charming woman, but your eldest son needs a bit of firmness, and it's not going to be pretty, so I would suggest that you have a deep nap and stay in your room.' Ruth paused, then sagged physically. She turned away, and Tom heard the click of her door closing and then another softer click as she locked it. Reginald had taken refuge in his bedroom and was lounging on the upper bunk pretending to read a comic book. Get up, please, said Gunther from the doorway. Tom was gripping his right hand unbearably excited. It's like hunting. I don't think so, said Reginald, staring at his comic. I'm a little tired. Gunther disengaged Tom's hand, went into the room, and sat on a low brown steamer's trunk. When he spoke, his voice was low, even. This is what I will ask of you, and I will only ask it once. You will go and show me where the destroyer is, and then we will have a conversation about the toys outside. Reginald did not reply. I would like you to do this now. Nothing. Do you consider this an unfair request? Silence. All right, said Gunther. He reached forward and tried pulling the comic book from Reginald's hands. Reginald tightened his grip, and then Gunther yanked violently, tearing the comic book in two. Reginald leapt up. That was a present from my father. He'll make you pay for that. Gunther reached for him. Reginald threw himself backwards, kicking his legs wildly. Gunther's hands fastened on one of them, and he pulled Reginald bodily off the bunk bed. There was a cry, a dark thump, and then Reginald went limp. Tom's eyes widened. His hands went to his mouth. Gunther leaned forward, pulling Reginald's eyelid open. He's all right, he said, then picked him up. Reginald exploded into kicks and screams again. With some difficulty, Gunther levered him into the toy room. Where is the destroyer? he asked. He set Reginald down, immediately blocking the door. Reginald stepped back into the room, panting, his eyes wild. He jerked his sleeve across his nose. You just wait, mister. My dad is coming home next week, and, and, and when he does, and he sees what you've done, he's, he's, he's going to deal with you. I think your dad and I are going to be just fine, said Gunther now. Tell me where the destroyer is. You're mad, snarled Reginald, backing away a little further. Bar me. I won't do it. 
No, that's true, of course. Free will is so important. Gunther backed out of the room, then closed the door, locking it from the outside. Yeah, that's just fine, shouted Reginald. Lock me in with the toys. It'll be so much fun. Tom's face fell. This isn't justice. Gunther leaned down. Now, he said with a smile, bring me the key to the cellar. Tom's eyes lit up. After they had locked Reginald in the cellar and Gunther had told him he would be freed once he decided to show them where the destroyer was, Gunther and Tom went downstairs to the kitchen. Wow, said Tom for perhaps the twentieth time as Gunther made some tea. Dad never did that. There was no point even mentioning his mother. Shame, too, said Gunther, stirring in some powdered milk. He might be beyond saving. Beyond... Tom sort of felt his way through to what Gunther was saying. He felt horror in his heart at the idea. People betray themselves, then their brothers, and finally their country, murmured Gunther. He cocked his head and looked squarely at Tom. And you? I don't think I'd act like that, said Tom. And what do you do, Tommy, besides dodge your brother and pick up after him? Tom smiled weakly with great pleasure. His brow furrowed at the unusual conversation. I read. I like to build planes. I'm going to be a pilot. Your eyes are good. Tom nodded very. I can see a match a mile away at night. We tested it. Who's we? Me and Reginald. He didn't think I could. Well, that makes sense. I think you would make an excellent pilot. Do you want to be a war pilot or a peace pilot? Tom frowned. There won't be any more wars, Dad says. This is the last one. Gunther nodded, something unreadable in his eyes. Yes, but let's say that you could have anything, be anything. Would you be a war pilot or a peace pilot? There was a thump from downstairs, followed by a wail of pain and pure, pure despair. Tom smiled. Well, I think I would be bored of being a peace pilot after a while. But if I was a war pilot, I'd have to be sure I was on the side of the good fellows. I wouldn't want to shoot someone just because someone else pointed me at them. Gunther nodded slowly. Do you know how to fight? Fight? Like yell? Gunther laughed. No. Man fight. Fists up. Chest out. Head back. Tom shook his head slowly. Gunther leaned forward. Well, maybe you should learn. From you, said Tom very seriously. Yes, from me. If you want to be a war pilot, you might as well find out if you like fighting. I mean, it's a good thing you don't fight with your brother. Tom frowned. How come? That's not fighting. That's like spitting from a bridge. A real warrior never fights like that. That's how diplomats and women fight. What's a diplomat? Gunther paused. No, that... That'll have to wait. There was a pause. The wailing continued from downstairs. What do we do now? asked Tom. Gunther grinned, then stood up suddenly. Do you play cards? he asked. They played for the majority of the afternoon. Ruth ventured downstairs, but Gunther sent her back up again. Eventually, there was a wail from downstairs. Gunther! Gunther leapt up and ran down the front hall. He unlocked the cellar door and opened it. Reginald sat on the cold ground, his fists clenched. I have to use the lavatory. Where is the destroyer? I, I, I've thought about it, but I know that someone moved it. I bet it was Tom, that it Reginald, said Gunther softly, cutting him off. He walked over and squatted in front of the boy, cocking his head to one side so their heads were more or less at the same angle. Reginald. Did you put that destroyer away? Yeah. But you don't know where it is now. Tom doesn't play with ships. Your mother doesn't play with ships. No one else in this whole house plays with ships. So if you can't find it, it's because you are lying about putting it away. No, wait. Shh, shh. Gunther leaned forward and touched Reginald's wet cheek. I don't think you're a bad child. You told a lie because you wanted to make your life a little easier. And that's all right. 
We all want to do that because we don't know that lying actually makes our lives a lot harder and the lives of those around us. And by the time we do know that, it is often too late. So today, I'm making your life harder because you are lying. But that's not just my rule, it's a rule of life. Gunther shook his head slowly, his eyes never leaving Reginald's. Not personal. I'm not trying to beat you or make you cry or win. If you were playing with matches, I'd take them away. You want to lie, I have to take that away too. For the same reason. Do you see what I mean? Yes. Tom appeared in the doorway, tears in his eyes. So now, I'm going to let you out, and we're going to get you something to eat, and then we're going to talk about the toys outside, all right? Gunther took a step back, leaving a space in front of the door. As soon as he did so, Reginald shot forward past him out into the hallway, where he turned and smiled. I'm sorry, sir, but I really cannot sit and listen to lectures from a coward who won't even pick up a gun and do his Christian duty. So saying, he grabbed his yellow anorak and walked out the front door, out into the rain, past the drowning toys. Tom's face was white. Gunther stood up slowly, then walked over to Tom and put his hand on the boy's head. Tom's shoulders contracted painfully. He desperately wanted the words which were to come, though he didn't know what they were to be, to not come, for Gunther not to say what Gunther was about to say. But Gunther said them anyway. Beyond saving, he said with slow, thick clarity. Tom burst into tears, burying his face in the older man's thigh, clutching at his thick trousers. The destroyer is in the blue trunk in our room. That's where I put it. That's where it's supposed to be. I know, murmured Gunther, stroking the boy's hair, staring out into the rain at the receding yellow boy. I know.